New Testament scripture comes from Revelation. Again, our New Testament scripture comes from Revelation chapter 1, starting with the fourth verse. And when you have it, please stand. Revelation 1, starting with verse 4, last book of the Bible. Hear ye the word of the Lord. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him to be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see them. And when, even, when they, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of all the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. amen. Uh, you may be seated. I want to spend a little time today talking about the who and what of Jesus. All right. The who and what of Jesus. Uh, this passage of scripture, uh, and really this book in general, is often preached, but it's preached a little differently. We've uh, made a franchise out of this. They've made a book series out of this called Left Behind. They've made movies, and there are people who go around kind of teaching on this passage. But the revelation or the apocalypse means the unveiling. It means the revealing. It, it, it's letting something be known. And while people have often used this to make it about the rapture, and end times, revelations is written more as an introduction rather than an ending or benediction. It's uh, written by John on the island of Patmos after a vision from God. And this is special in and of itself because Patmos is an island and Patmos is not necessarily considered a, a heavy place for theology. It's not a Bethlehem or a Jerusalem. People aren't thinking about people going there to do big things, especially in the name of the Lord. But Patmos is considered an outsider. And that is what this thing that we call Christianity is actually about. It's about the outsiders. It's about taking the least, the last, and the lost and making something out of them. What we would eventually call Christianity, because they didn't call it Christianity back then, it was just the way, or you were a follower of Jesus, or you were a follower of somebody else. But we ended up calling it Christianity. 
but it became popular amongst the people at that time because it took the social structures and the cultural norms of that time and kind of flipped it on its side. Slaves and women got status in Christianity that they would not get in their own household. And your average person, your average man, got a status in Christianity that made them equal with kings. It says it in the, in the text right there. They made us kings. Mm-hmm. You know, and they often say that they talk about Jesus being king of kings and lord of lords. The first king is Jesus, but the second king and is us. The first lord is Jesus, and the second lord is us that elevated our status. Mm. Back then, wherever you were born is where you stayed. Mm. So to them, if you were born broke, you were supposed to die broke. If you were Uh born on a low social status, you were supposed to die on a low social status. And that's why this thing called Christianity got so popular, because they came, somebody came and said, you don't have to be Mm. on the bottom all your life. Mm. It was special. And so these people who were treated lowly in their own house could get a better status through Christianity and people who were considered just an average peasant could be treated like a king and then there was this man from Galilee that was considered the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we look at who Jesus is and the first thing I see in the text is he is a faithful witness. Right around verse 5, Jesus is a faithful witness. And found something interesting about the word witness in the Greek when it's put right here. The word witness in the Greek means martyr. Being a Christian means you're going to have to die. And not just die like we all have to die. Uh, you know, man born of a woman's days are short and full of trouble and then they die. Not just that, but you are going to have to die to self. There can be something you really like that you will have to die to. There is something that you pay a lot of attention to and they say that you can tell who your God is just on how you spend your time and your treasure. You'll have to die to that. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily have to shun everybody else who still does that. But it can't hold the same place of importance in your life as God. Being a Christian meant you had to pay a cost. It's not easy living this life. You have to pay a cost, and that cost is more than an hour or hour and a half on Sunday once a week, or mm-hmm. for some of us once a month. All right, all right, come on. They called those Christians back then, those who were following Jesus in the Roman courts. You can go back and check out the documents, and you will see that they are called martyrs even in the courtroom. Mm. Martyr, the term has kind of been, been taken from this because we call martyrs these days those who are dying in a terrorist fashion 
Hmm. They, they have went to sacrifice their life. And yes, there is a sacrifice of life when you want to use the word martyr the way it was being used, but there they use it for a moment. When Jesus was talking about being a witness and using that word martyr, it wasn't for a moment. It was for your lifetime. All right, all right. You have to take your very life. I was reading a story in a book by the name of Not a Fan, written by Kyle Eiderman. It's a really great read, and it talks about fans and how he is not a fan. Uh, what he mentions in the book pretty much is uh, that we Christians, our, some of us are not really followers of Jesus Christ, but we are fans. Mm. All right. We are enthusiastic supporters mm -hmm. of Jesus, and we are close enough to be in the building when something goes on and we can see what goes on and when it goes on, when we're in the building, we cheer. Go Jesus, go Jesus, go. We cheer them on, but we're not necessarily willing to give up all for him. Uh, one of the quotes he says is, following Jesus is not something you can do at night when no one notices. It is a 24-hour-a-day commitment that will interfere with your life. And it's not in small print. This is a guarantee. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to give up all. Uh, there's a story that he tells in there, and, and uh, he goes on a mission trip, and I can't remember the name of the country right now because it's been a while since I read the book, but I remember the story. They went on a mission trip to a particular country and started preaching Jesus in a place where the predominantly uh, all of the people there were not Christian. Matter of fact, there was nowhere near the predominant religion. If you were a Christian, that was in the minority. And so he preached Jesus, and these three people gave their lives to Christ. Hallelujah, praise God. Mm -hmm. Go Jesus, go Jesus, go. And then he went on after he finished preaching and got them situated and told them about Jesus and sin and grace and and life everlasting and everything else. And he went on the rest of the tour of the country. And then he went to a homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. And that homeless shelter that he went to, he saw those same three people that had given their lives to Christ there with all of their belongings in a sleeping bag in tow. And he asked his guide, well, what happened there? And he said, well, Christianity is not really accepted in this community, Mr. Eidelman. And so if you decide to turn to Jesus... You will be kicked out of your community. You will be disowned by your family. You will be ostracized. And he was shocked that that happened. But his guide told him they knew that before they came down to give themselves to Christ. They understood that price and they were still willing to pay it. They were not fans. Being a martyr being a faithful witness is not about passing out tracks. Matter of fact, passing out tracks is a good way to get past the Simpson to have an argument with you. It's happened before. I tell you, it happened in the Walmart parking lot because the Bible does not say to pass out tracks. It's good to tell people about Jesus, but then when you pass out tracks, it sort of becomes a scoring system. 
The Bible doesn't say to witness, it says to be a witness. Let your lifestyle lead. So if I pass you out a brochure and don't do anything else about it, all I did was waste paper and ink. We have to be a witness, have to live the lifestyle, not just say certain things, not just pass out certain things. Let your lifestyle be that because your lifestyle will preach a better sermon than any brochure ever could. Your lifestyle will preach a better sermon than any preacher could. I can say I love you all the time, but if I don't show you the love, do I really love you? Be a witness. Be a martyr. Live your life for this. Not just an hour or two hours a week. So Jesus Christ is a faithful witness. He dedicated his life, the time that he was on earth, to the kingdom of God and advancing the kingdom of God. And if we are to be followers of Jesus Christ, because that's what being a Christian means, we are to also dedicate our lives to the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. So he is a faithful witness, and Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead, as it says still in verse 5. And, and John is channeling 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, when he says that he's the firstborn of the dead. He says, for I have delivered you first of all, that I which also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas and then the twelve and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once whom greater part remained present but some have fallen asleep. After that time he was seen by James and then all the apostles. Firstborn of the dead. Being a Christian meant you were going to have to die. So Jesus went first. There's an adage that says you can't lead where you don't go. And you can't teach what you don't know. So Jesus was letting me show you, I'm going to need you to give up your life. But I can't ask you to do something that I can't do myself. Jesus is out front leading by example. And so... If Jesus is out front leading by his example, his example is advising the kingdom, is advancing the kingdom, rather, it's God's kingdom, and he gave all for it. And he could give all for it. We ought to be able to give our own time, talent, and treasure. So he's a faithful witness, and he's the firstborn of the dead. So he knew he was going to have to give up his life for us, and he did it. Everything that the Bible said about him, he did it. Every prophecy that came before Jesus prophesying the Messiah, he did it. Then he's the ruler of the kings of this earth. See, there is a tendency for us to look at our religion and think of things to come. We can think of heaven and hell and what happens when we die. And the Bible does provide those answers. But when we get into the scripture, there is also an expectation of changing the here and now. Uh, It's kind of hard to accept that sometimes, especially the way that it was given to us, especially the way that this was taught to us. Uh, We are told about things being better by and by. We We are taught about the soon and very soon going to see the king. And so we forget about 
the things that we can change right now. It's nothing against thinking about the by and by and the soon and very soon, but we can also change the right now. And our forefathers were supposed to accept the oppression because we were told once slavery was over and everything going on, every day would be Sunday. And our ancestors, so that's how they accepted it. They were told about the slaves, obey your masters. They were told about that part. And then the, our forefathers in the civil rights movements were expected to accept the oppression because one day they would all get mansions and streets made of gold and it would be greater later. Completely overlooking the part about the Bible that tells us right now we are supposed to be the head and not the tail. We are supposed to be above and never shall be beneath. We are supposed to be the lender and not the borrower. We're supposed to be blessed in the city. We're supposed to be blessed in the field. We're supposed to be blessed in our coming and our going. We are the righteousness of God. We are the apple of God's eye. We are supposed to be blessed now. We are supposed to do something about it now. But it's a tactic of the enemy to try to get us to suppress that voice. Try to suppress that and hold us down and oppress us. That's why when they say black lives matter, somebody tries to come back and say all lives matter. Funny thing about the All Lives Matter movement is that there was a young Caucasian man, unarmed, tased and shot multiple times by a police officer. I did not see any All Lives Matter people coming to his defense. The people coming to his defense was the Black Lives Matter movement. So we have to be weary about that. And the only way that we can uh, uh, be cognizant of when people are trying to do that is to stay in the word and study. The Bible says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't say take it now and then you'll be better later. It doesn't say lay down and be oppressed now and it'll be better later. It says, no, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not only that, but when Jesus says uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, that means the kingdom of God is going, but it also meant that the kingdom of God and things that you could do were literally within arm's reach. How we treat those around us, how we treat those next to us, that is the sermon. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. What are you doing within arm's reach? You can literally do something about it with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your friends. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do things for the kingdom of God within God's reach. When Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, yes, there was the hell we have to worry about if you die and you don't believe in Jesus. But there was also a pagan church right down the street from where he said that. And guess what its name was? The Gates of Hell. So when we talk about what we're doing with our church, it's not just about the future, but what's going on in the community. So we don't want to over-spiritualize everything. We're building a church not only for the future, but we need to build a church for the community. Ah, so he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. What we're doing right now, we are the kings of the earth. 
And then he is the Alpha and the Omega, it says in verse 8. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's in the adage, like you say, in, 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 uh, we talk about the Alpha and the Omega so much that some of us may not be familiar with the Greek alphabet. The adage, Alpha and the Omega, is like saying it's covering everything from A to Z. The first and the last. The everything is common language. There is no beginning and no end. It is saying that God is eternal. God is everywhere. God is everywhere we can possibly be and everywhere we're not. All over the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. If you have a problem with the last, see the first. If you have a problem with the first, see the last. God's going to be there. Saw a shirt one time that said, God is all. Rule number one. Rule number two said, see rule number one. Rule number three said, see number two. God is all. He is everything. He's the eternal one, the one who was and is and is to come. That about covers everywhere you can be and everything you can do. So that is who and what Jesus is. And what has he done? He shed his blood to redeem us. I know sometimes I preach and I preach to voice my frustrations, not necessarily with the, the church, St. Paul, but with the church in general. And I spend a lot of time in seminary trying to figure out how some of these people get turned loose on pulpits. And one of my, one of my big concerns is there are people that actually have a problem with the blood. Boggles my mind having a problem with talking about blood being shed. And they don't like those certain songs where you talk too much about the blood. And I'm like, but you were washed in the blood. Take a dirty soul and wash it with red blood and it comes out white as snow. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood. He paid the price. So that we could be redeemed. And if you pay that price, I would respect that price. I would re- appreciate that price. I would appreciate the cost. My salvation was paid for with Jesus' blood. So I don't have a problem hearing about Jesus' blood in church. It bought my way in. It gave me my past, my access to heaven. It's kind of like going to a football game and saying, I don't like tickets. You need one to get in, so you you might have a problem with it, but it's how you got in the game. And if how you got in the game is that you need to respect how you got in the game. I like going places, but I don't like to travel. How you going to get there then? He redeemed us with his blood. That is what he did. And when he redeemed us with his blood, going back up to verse 6, he made us a kingdom of priests. One of the things I do like about us these days in terms of Christianity, especially with Methodism, is that we believe in something called the priesthood of all believers. There was a certain time where you had to go to a priest in order to do something. If you wanted to ask for forgiveness of your sins, you couldn't do that on your own. You had to get the priest to go in. And make a sacrifice on your behalf. You had to get the priest to go in to intercede for you. Now there is nothing wrong with intercession. But. There is a time. Where you need to be able to go on your own. You can't make it 
on the coattail of somebody else. You have to develop your own relationship with Jesus Christ. The church may not be open at the time that you need to go before the Lord. The pastor may not be available. The DS may not be available. The bishop may not be available. And if they're not available, you still should have your own direct access to Jesus. So we are all priests. Our first ministry should be our own household. We ought to spend our own time praying. We ought to spend our own time worshiping. We ought to spend our own time studying the Bible. Not just wait for somebody else to give it to us. And you ought to be studying it all the time on your own to make sure I ain't saying nothing that made it up. But it's a kingdom of priests. And what John is doing when he's uh, talking about this is this is not a new idea. We're reading about it in Revelation, but he's quoting Exodus when it happens. And it says in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, it says, Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall, be a tre- you shall be a special treasure to me. Above all people, for the earth is mine. I'll read that again. It says, you shall be a special treasure to me. Above all people, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God said, I brought you out of bondage. And here's what you now have. The measure of a king is how well its subjects are treated. That is why even outside of a kingdom, when you look at the way they rule, they look at how effective somebody is when they govern a country. What's one of the first things they talk about is the economy. How many people have jobs? How many people own land? How much does stuff cost? All of that is measured, and they use that to measure the effectiveness of a president because before there were presidents, there were kings. And they measured the effectiveness of a king and how well his people were treated. So when he says the earth is mine and you are a special treasure, God is saying I'm taking care of you. My kingdom cannot suffer. My kingdom cannot lack. I will deliver you people up out of bondage, and that is how I will take care of you. So that's who he is, and that's what God does. And what else is he going to do? He's going to come back again. He's going to come back again in the clouds. That is why we do this. That is why we are here on Sundays, because Jesus died for our sins. But that is not how the story ends. We are waiting on his return. First, revealing himself to the Jews. Even those who pierced him. Uh, he's coming to save us all. The, the, uh, Jesus was a Jew. I know we don't talk about it often, but Jesus was a Jew. The messianic, prophe- messianic prophecies, those looking for a savior to come save us, somebody born of a virgin coming to save us from the oppressor, that is a Jewish prophecy. Some of the stuff we do, we didn't make up on our own. We inherited from the Hebrew people. Take communion. We didn't make that up. That was a Passover meal. 
And that cup that he lifted and said, this is my blood, which is shared for you, that was the third cup of a four-cup dinner in a Jewish Passover meal. Same thing with the bread that was the matzah, the body that was broken for him. It, it came from a Jewish prophecy, so we, can have, we have to be careful about being anti-Semitic with our text because he's going to reveal himself to the Jews as well. God has a plan for the Jews, and guess what? We might not be privy to it. So we have to be careful. God has a plan for all of God's children. So we can't just throw away the entire Old Testament, and we can't speak ill of Jewish people. God has a plan for them. One day Jesus will reveal himself to them and the others, just like he revealed himself to us. And I thank God for him revealing himself to us. I thank God for him saving a wretch like me. I thank God for him coming down through 42 generations, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, walking on water, healing the sick, raising the dead, opening up blinded eyes, setting the captives free. I thank God that's what he did. Because everything he did, he was prophesied to do. And then he had to die for us. He had to become a human because he had to, say, he had to become what he was trying to save. He had to become what he was trying to redeem. And so he knew what it was like to be hungry and sleepy and angry and frustrated and tired and bored and dealing with people who don't necessarily have your best interests at heart. He knew what it was like to sit at the table with somebody who was going to betray you. He had those experiences just like we all did. But that's not where the story ended. He ended up going to Calvary, an innocent man, and dying for us so that he could take on our sins and take them away so that we'd be able to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. He did it for us. And he's coming back again. And we are to wait and worship and continue to do what we do and let others know about this Jesus. So that whosoever shall believe in him shall have not perish, but have everlasting life. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open, and we invite you to come. Amen.